Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNH Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler. I am the founder of the BVA Nudge Unit, and with me is my colleague, Suzanne Kirkendall. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. It's very exciting to be joining you for this episode. I'm delighted to be introducing our guest, Dr. Ashley Willens. Dr. Willens is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School in Negotiations, Organizations, and Markets. She's been named a rising star of behavioral science by the International Behavioral Exchange and Behavioral Science and Policy Association, not once, but twice, and is the author of the new book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Ashley is part of the Global Happiness Thematic Council and advises on the well-being strategy of numerous nonprofit and for-profit partners. Her research mainly focuses on understanding how the daily and long-term decisions that people make about time and money in their personal lives, their relationships, and at work impact their well-being. Ashley, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. So, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today for this exciting Be Good episode. I would like to start our conversation by coming back to your background and uh, career. Ashley, can you tell us about how you came to be interested in a career in behavioral science? Yeah, so I have a bit of a roundabout career as many, I think many people in the field uh, have become aware of over time, certainly my students. So if you Google my name, uh, my academic publications will come up, but so will my IMDb page. So I started my professional career as an actor, went to theater school at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London after high school and quitting college the first time around. And it was in theater school that I developed my love of understanding human motivation. I always gravitated toward trying to understand the historical context in which my characters lived. So I spent way more time in the library in theater school than I did learning lines or where I was supposed to stand on stage. And what I learned at the end of my theater school experience is that I should probably go back to college. Acting probably wasn't in my future. My theater professors were not very pleased that I never seemed to memorize my lines properly. Um, and so I went to college and started to uh, learn about psychology. And one of the first mentors I had was um, in community college, actually. She alerted me to the work of Dan Gilbert, who's a very famous uh, psychologist who studies happiness. And his student, Elizabeth Dunn, happened to be working at the University of British Columbia. So I went to the University of British Columbia in part so that I could find out whether I could work for Liz Dunn and all of the exciting work that she was doing in the happiness space. So it was through reading Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert, learning about uh, Elizabeth Dunn's work, and then eventually working in her lab and completing grad, 
grad studies in social psychology that I really fell in love with the field of social psychology. And it really wasn't until about halfway through graduate studies when I spent a visiting semester or two at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business that I learned what the field of behavioral science was. And I loved that it married rigorous theory with practical implications. And I was hooked. I audited uh, Richard Thaler's class before he won the Nobel Prize, I uh, felt very lucky to be able to do that. And it was really the experience together of studying happiness and then learning from great behavioral economists and behavioral scientists at the University of Chicago that I really fell in love with the field of behavioral science because it's both conceptually interesting and practically relevant. And uh, beyond uh, Elizabeth Dunn and uh and uh, Dan Gilbert, do you have other men mentors that you would like to, uh, that had an influence on your uh, background and interest? Yeah, definitely. I worked in as an in the in a nudge unit, so I helped to co-found a nudge unit in the British Columbia provincial government in the final year of graduate school. Sort of secretly, my advisor didn't know I was also working full time for government um, because. I wasn't sure, you know, how she would feel or how my my program would feel about, uh, I, you know, I was in a very traditional social psych program, so they were a little bit reticent about applied work. They're really a lot more theoretical and conceptual. So I was moonlighting as a full-time government behavioral scientist, and Heather Devine, who runs the behavioral science group in the British Columbia provincial government, served as a mentor to me to really learn how to take behavioral science findings and put them into practice. It's one thing to test an idea in a lab, and it's a completely different thing to run a large-scale field experiment with millions of citizens. And she really helped me engage in the world of science and knowledge translation, taking the ideas from the lab and trying to implement them in the field. So she's been an inspiring mentor to me over the course of my career. And is there one experiment you have conducted that, from your perspective, is the most insightful or perhaps one that you are very proud of? It's one study that I've been running over the last several years that took a key idea from my dissertation research that giving up financial resources to have more time can promote greater happiness. So we ran an initial pilot version of the study. This became my job market paper. It was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in 2017. And in one illustrative example, we show that we recruit a sample of working Canadians and we randomly assign them to experience two spending conditions. In one condition, they spend a $40 payment in a way that saves them time. And in another condition, they everyone experiences both conditions. They spend a $40 payment on a material purchase for themselves. And then we measure happiness and stress at the end of the day. And we see that people who spend money on time-saving purchases report less stress and greater happiness at the end of the day, regardless of the order in which they made the material purchase or the time-saving purchase. And so that study provided initial evidence for the idea that giving up financial resources can save time. But what I was also observing in those data in my dissertation is that those who can't afford typically to make time-saving purchases are the ones who might stand to benefit the most. So what I was observing in my correlational data in that project is that individuals who are living at or below the poverty line experienced the greatest feelings of time stress and also benefited the most when in the off chance they were able to make time-saving purchases. So this inspired a program of research that I've been conducting over the last couple of years, trying to take this idea of time-saving 
vouchers and put them into a policy context. So we've ran a large scale field experiment in Kenya where we gave out unconditional cash transfers, which are the gold standard of economic development, and compared that to time-saving vouchers, meals and laundry for a chronically stressed population of working mothers living in Kibera, the largest informal settlement in East Africa. And what we found is really fascinating to me. We found similar beneficial effects of both cash, which is the gold standard, and time-saving in this longitudinal field experiment that we ran. So this is really the first road test, if you will, of the policy implications of time-saving for those who are among the working poor in society. We're now replicating, trying to replicate these findings in India with an even more extensive time-saving intervention. And I think that experiment is something I'm most proud of because it takes an idea that I observed in a relatively controlled environment and puts it to the test in a really difficult real-world context to see if time-saving can pay off even in a highly stressed sample living in a developing market. And before we talk with uh, Suzanne about TimeSmart, the last question, why have you been interested in the specific topic of happiness? Uh, I think what always drew me to the scientific study of happiness is that it's a fairly optimistic field. It says, despite our living conditions, despite how much money we have in the bank, despite our genetic makeup, which we can't control, Quite a bit of the happiness that we experience on an everyday basis is something that we have the power to change. I've always felt like this was a very um, optimistic way of looking at the world. And it's also really nice, I think, to bring rigorous um, econometrics and rigorous uh, statistics to this sort of squishy topic that's been debated for centuries. So I just find it an endlessly fascinating topic. It's particularly fascinating because we're not very good at knowing what's going to bring us happiness in advance. And so it leaves open a, a wide range of, of possibilities, both in terms of what actually makes us happy and whether people can get better at identifying and living closer to uh, living a closer life to what's actually going to get them greater happiness in the moment and over time. Fascinating. Wow. So now let's turn to your book, Ashley, Time Smart. Could you tell us more about why you decided to write this book? So I just told you we're not very good at doing things that are going to make us happy. Um, unfortunately, that also applies to happiness researchers. And so I was doing all of this research on the benefit of prioritizing time over money, on the benefit of giving up money to have more free time. I was finding these patterns of data all over the world for working adults living in countries all over the world um, at all ages, despite various upbringing and all of this. And yet, despite all of my data, I was having a really hard time putting these ideas into practice in the context of my own life. So one really striking moment is toward, I think, halfway through my first faculty year at the Harvard Business School, I was giving an academic talk, talking about the importance of prioritizing time for romantic relationships. And at the very same time, I was going through a devastating breakup with a partner of 10 years, in part because I really never gave that relationship enough time. And I was really thinking to myself, I was giving this talk that I'm really sick of telling people to do what I say, but not what I do to live life in, consistent with my data, but being unable to do that for, my, for myself. So I became interested in the idea of writing this book to take, again, these ideas from the lab, from the research that I've been reading and contributing to for the last several years over the course of my PhD, and try to kind of put these strategies into practice to help all of us, myself included, live a more time affluent and happier life. 
Amazing. So you're, you're saying this a little bit in our conversation and in your book, you talked about it a lot more, which is the idea that when it comes to weighing up time versus money, most people are going to overestimate how happy more money will make them and underestimate how happy more time will make them. Why, why is this important kind of fundamentally for all of us to understand? Yeah. So I think this is really important. There's been some great research um, also showing that this is true when it comes to job selection. So we overestimate the benefit for our happiness of extrinsic motivators like cash and prestige. And we fail to think about what the experience of the job is going to feel like. And so we will opt into higher paying jobs that aren't as pleasant. And then when we're in the experience of the job, the only thing that really matters for our happiness is how much we enjoy the job. The extrinsic motivators fade away when we're in the experience of doing something. And I think this is such an important concept for happiness because it's something fundamental to the idea of happiness. We often think that more money is going to gain us greater happiness, but we don't really see the, the pattern of results suggests there is a diminutive relationship between wealth and well-being. If anything, people who end up at the top 10% of the income bracket in their respective countries actually report a decrease in well-being in part because they're comparing themselves to people with even more money than they have. And so if anything, it suggests that chasing money as a path to greater happiness is unlikely to pay, pay off. Um, and I hear this a lot, this if-then thinking from students, from um, people that I talk to about my findings. Well, if I get this next position, if I make this next amount of money, then I'm going to stop and start enjoying my life. And this if-then thinking is so problematic because once we get that next promotion, our reference points change. Then we want the next promotion and we start comparing ourselves to people who have even more status, prestige, and wealth than we do. And so I'm really trying to push back on this notion that we should be looking toward materialistic or extrinsic, uh, extrinsic uh, sorry, that we should be looking toward um, extrinsic rewards and goals money, prestige as a path to greater happiness and say, if there's something that you want to do in your life right now, the future is hypothetical. We don't know how much time we have left. So we should at least be focusing some of our energy and attention and maximizing our satisfaction on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're talking about something that I think we can all relate to this if then if then thinking this comparison, it's very common, but it's so problematic. Why, why and how do you think we got to this place of thinking about time versus money so wrong? Um, and could you also talk a little bit about what you call time traps? Yeah, so this time and money thinking is societally determined in part. So we do see quite a bit of country level differences in the extent to which most citizens value leisure or value work. This has to do with Protestant work ethic being more prevalent historically in certain cultural contexts like in the United States, as opposed to other cultural contexts like Europe. There's been some great research by Sylvia Beliza and colleagues showing that busyness is a status symbol in the United States. But in Europe, in Italy, actually leisure and having more enjoyment of leisure activities is seen as higher status. So our society and the norms that are prevalent within it play an important role in dictating whether we gravitate more toward money and financial success or replace more of a priority on 
leisure. This also has to do with financial uncertainty. So we've observed in our data, it isn't wealth that predicts whether or not people value time or money. You could imagine that if you have a lot of money in the bank, it's easier to value time. But interestingly, what we observe is it's not income that predicts whether people value time over money or money over time. It's how financially secure people feel. This helps to explain why older individuals start to value time more than money. Um, not only are they more aware of the finite nature of life, but they're also more financially secure in their lives typically. Um, and so we observe country level differences in the extent to which economic uncertainty predicts financial value. And this economic uncertainty is also higher in countries with less um, social system, social support. So it's a multifaceted, you know, both our childhood experiences we've seen in some data sets that if you grew up under high levels of income inequality, you're more likely to value money as an adult. So there are both individual factors as well as societal factors that can lead us to overemphasize money at the expense of our free time. Um, so I would say that, you know, there are many reasons that kind of lead us to focus more on work and money and that this has increased actually as a result of ideal worker norms um, in more, you know, in, in modern society, our work life has fundamentally changed. And so what we, you know, we used to have our work being more determined by our output and our output was very concrete and tangible. But now our output as knowledge workers is somewhat less easy to track. And so organizations use hours as a proxy for commitment. Um, and this leads us to feel like we have to be constantly responsive. And this links to one of the time traps that um, I talk a lot about in the book and in my research where we feel time poor, we feel overwhelmed by the demands of work and life, even though we have more leisure now than we used to, in part because our technology is constantly disrupting our leisure activities, pulling us out of the present moment and into all of the other things we could or should be doing. It is what you call time confetti. Yeah, so Bridget Schull actually coined that term, but I really loved it. So I borrowed it from her book as well. And there's some good research suggesting by Jordan Etkin and others that um, anytime we experience goal conflict between two areas of our life, this leads to time stress and pressure. So our technology is a culprit for time stress and time poverty, because not only does it disrupt the amount of leisure time we have available, we we check a message that's a few minutes that now we don't have available for a leisure activity. But it also reminds us of these different competing roles that we have in our life. Kosta Kushlov has some research showing that if you randomly assign parents at a science museum to turn off their alerts, uh, while in trying to enjoy a Saturday afternoon with their family, they enjoy that experience much more. But when they have their alerts on, they're reminded of the opportunity cost of that leisure. They're thinking about all the other things they probably should be doing instead and don't derive as much satisfaction from their leisure experiences. Very interesting. So what are some simple tricks you can share with our listeners to help rebalance their perspective about their time versus their money? In your book, you suggest three different time affluent strategies, finding time, funding time, and reframing time. Could you elaborate a little bit on each of those strategies? Yeah, I think the very first strategy, finding time, is really about doing a time audit. It's first recognizing whether you're someone who usually makes decisions more focused on finances or more focused on free time. So just kind of understanding how you typically make decisions is the very first step. And finding time is also not only about learning your default mode, whether you value time more than money or money more than time, but also whether your 
days, how you spend time on an everyday basis, match how you would ideally like to spend time on an everyday basis. So in my book, I walk readers through the day reconstruction method, which is something that time use and happiness researchers use in the American Time Use Survey um, also collects data on, which is a US representative large scale survey of time use and happiness. And it's really simple, actually. You ask yourself, what are the major activities that you do at the beginning of the day? What are the activities that you did in the middle of the day? And what activities did you do at the end of the day? And how did all of these activities make you feel? I ask people to plot it on a two-by-two two grid based on Paul Dolan's work. You have to think not only how much joy and satisfaction do you get out of an activity, but you also think, have to think about how meaningful that activity is. Some of our meaningful activities, like taking care of young kids, might not feel pleasant in the moment, but is contributing to an important goal in life. So you don't wanna necessarily get rid of those experiences and you might not be able to, but you wanna be thinking about minimizing the amount of time that you spend in unpleasant and unproductive activities that usually involves passive social media consumption, for example. And then the second strategy that I talk about is funding time. So one way to get rid of unpleasant, unproductive experiences is to outsource them or give up money in order to have more and better time. So this could be buying an autonomous product like a Roomba. This could be house cleaning services or meal delivery. And I've done a lot of research on this topic over the last several years, even at small dollar amounts, $40, which most of us have at our discretion to spend, um, time-saving purchases can have a positive effect for our happiness. They can reduce our feelings of time stress and increase our relationship satisfaction. Um, and as, as I mentioned at the top of this uh, conversation, I've seen the benefits emerge of funding or sorry, of funding time for individuals living all over the world in all income brackets. So it's not just for individuals with a lot of money in the bank. You can also think about funding time in the workplace by kind of paying to delegate, like paying to outsource some of your unpleasant work tasks like data entry via Upwork. So it's not just for our personal lives. Um, and within this work context, you can also think about delegating tasks to other people. That doesn't cost any money at all, but can go a long way in saving yourself time. And then the last strategy is around reframing time. So as I already mentioned, some activities that are unpleasant and unproductive, we can't necessarily get out of. Sometimes we have to do budgeting or have to do data entry ourselves. There are personal activities that maybe for reasons that are consistent with our values, we wanna be a good model to our kids uh, with regard to the chores so we don't actually wanna outsource them. We should probably be thinking about reframing these negative experiences so that they're less detrimental to our well-being. This reframing exercise can take many forms. In the workplace, you can think about how your unpleasant, not that important tasks, connect with other tasks in or other peers' tasks in the workplace. Um, just this simple intervention, my my PhD student Jay Wan Yoon has research suggesting just thinking about how your low-level tasks connect with others to get your organization's work done can have a positive effect for meaning and satisfaction. And we can also do this reframing exercise in the context of our leisure activities. So my uh, collaborators, Colin West, Cassie McGillner, and Sanford DeVoe have a recently published paper showing that just going into the next weekend, thinking about that weekend like a vacation can make you enjoy that weekend more to be less disrupted by your technology and to be more present and mindful. And so there's a lot of reframing strategies that can help us feel better about the time that we have available, even if we're unable to change the activities within a specific day.
So interesting. So all, those strategies all make a lot of sense, right? They, they make intuitive sense and they're borne out by the research. Um, and the solutions sound quite simple, but I think we've all experienced that the execution can be a little bit more challenging. What are your recommendations to be successful at creating these new time affluence habits? Yeah, I, I mean, like anything based on the habit formation literature, I would say start small. Think about one habit you want to disrupt. Maybe you get out of bed right now because you're working from home and go right to your computer. Think about trying to put some active leisure in your schedule instead. So instead of rolling out of bed and going straight to your laptop, try to spend 30 minutes before you go to work, engaging in a social interaction, checking the news, reading a book, something that will get you out of this immediate work mindset. You also want to try to leverage your social relationships and your work environment. So something I talk about toward the end of the book is this idea that time poverty shouldn't just be up to individuals. It's surely not caused by each and every one of us. Organizations and societies themselves also make us time poor. So we're going to have to start thinking and doing research, um, looking at time as a collective resource. So we've been running a lot of experiments actually on work teams to create norms around being off when the workday starts. Some of these norms have gone missing in the virtual environment. And you can also think about importing this idea in the context of your household. It's not enough for you to want to make a time-saving purchase. You also have to bring your partner along in the conversation. So we want to be thinking about involving our close friends and our colleagues so that we have an easier time enacting these time smart strategies. Um, because if our partner doesn't agree, or our work colleagues email us at all hours of the day and night, it's gonna be very hard to resist the urge to reply back or to, um, and it's gonna be much more likely that you'll forgo the opportunity to make a time-saving purchase for example. The last thing I'll say on this point is that my PhD student, Ariella Cristal, has a, is writing her PhD on how we rely too much on our our willpower to get things done. So very concretely when brought to the time affluence space, if there's a tool or an app that will automatically turn off your phone when you're in the kitchen, or will automatically prevent you from being able to check your email during certain times of day, we should definitely pay money for these kinds of applications and technology. Our data suggests that we're pretty reticent to do this, especially for personally important goals, but if we want to accomplish something important to us, like becoming more physically fit or more time affluent, it's worth giving up some of our financial resources to hold ourselves accountable and to outsource some of our decision-making on an everyday basis to set ourselves up that we're in environments that make the decision easy for us as opposed to hard. Yes, defaults are so, so powerful when it comes to changing behavior. So if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I don't want to change everything at once. I know I need to start small. What is the best possible thing for me to start small or just to start with? Like, what are the best ways to supercharge how we spend our time and how we spend our money? I would try to add some of the more positive and meaningful experiences that you've identified on an everyday basis in half an hour increments. So I advocate for the idea of creating a time affluence to-do list. Most of us, when we find ourselves with breaks in the middle of the day between meetings, we'll just work on low-level, unimportant, non-urgent tasks that feel urgent, like getting to the bottom of our inbox. So I actually have a sticky note on my on my computer, which I call my like time affluence to-do list. So if I find myself with half an hour in between a meeting, 
I prompt myself to do something non-work related. Maybe I'll do 50 jumping jacks in my office. Maybe I'll go for a walk around the block. Maybe I'll text my mom back. Maybe I'll upload photos to a friend. Maybe I'll start planning uh, the takeout that my partner and I like to have uh, once a week on the weekend just to mix things up. Um, and so I would really advocate for doing that, trying to fill these small moments of time that easily go missing with some more positive, active leisure experience and not necessarily work through them. Love that idea. So good. All right. Well, last question I want to ask before I hand it back to Eric is, you know, in your book, you talk about there's some decisions which are really, really critical, like choosing a job, which you mentioned already, um, or having children. How would you advise our listeners to make good major decisions? And so, yeah, so this is great. We've already talked a little bit about this before. I just want to underscore that my research suggests that not only minor decisions like consumer purchases, how much we spend researching, how much time we spend researching for the best deal matter for happiness, but of course, major life decisions do as well. So um, last at the end of 2019, I published a paper showing that students who value time more than money made career decisions for more intrinsically motivated reasons. So they chose their next step after college more based on what they wanted to do versus what they had to do. And that this put them on an upward trajectory of well-being two to three years later. So the major life decisions that we make in part driven by what we value in life can really critically shape the happiness we experience across years. So when trying to think about making a good major life decision, you want to ask yourself not only how is it going to affect my finances, but how is it going to affect my time and enjoyment on an everyday basis? I'm in the process of, with my husband, of trying to buy our first house or condo, whatever we can afford in Boston is not a cheap city. And, you know, it's very easy, even though as a time researcher, I know that I should be focused on the commute. It's very easy given the current context because of working from home more um, or just wanting to get more house that I anchor on price and square footage. And that's very common. So we also just need to keep reminding ourselves when we're making major life decisions, how is this going to shape my time? And if we are going into a period of time in our lives, like having kids where we're going to have less time available, can you proactively plan to save yourself time in other ways by outsourcing more, having childcare. So trying to figure out how you're going to offset some of these time costs upfront before you get to that experience can reduce the amount of stress you get when you, what the, sorry, that can reduce the amount of stress that you experience when you're actually in that moment. So you don't wanna be uh, kind of planning for how do you can solve time poverty in the moment? You want to think proactively about how you might be able to time to solve time poverty in advance. Ashley, your book is uh, mainly about helping people as individuals, but your last chapter you call it systematic, systemic sorry, systemic change, starting with the idea that social structure promote time poverty. Could you explain this, please? Yes, yes. So this is something I've become really fascinated by um, over the last couple of years in terms of my research program. But again, it, it really comes back to some of those initial data I was observing in my PhD research. We see that individuals who are financially constrained also tend to be the most time poor among us. They work multiple jobs. They might be more likely to single be single parents. They have to travel 
very far distances to get to their places of employment. Even now, they might be more likely to be essential workers and have to commute far distances to work. And they're less able to access the market economy, which could help save them time. There's also been a lot of work in the development economics space showing that aid programs build in ordeal costs on purpose to try to proxy who needs it the most when it's very difficult to tell how much money people have in a certain region. And Cass Sunstein talks a lot about this as well and calls this sludge. So there's a lot of um, friction in various government and organizational processes that make it difficult for us to access services that we might need, and that this sludge or these friction costs are disproportionately burdening lower income, more financially constrained, or otherwise disadvantaged, more vulnerable groups in society. And this also extends not only you know more broadly from a government and policy context, but also from an organizational context. Teresa Mobley and her colleagues had a paper a couple of years ago showing that organizations systematically waste our time. They keep us idle between meetings. They force us to be at our desk for a certain period of time, even if our work is done for the day. Um, they, the paperwork burdens are on the rise across professions. And all of these administrative chores, all of these workplace practices serve to make all of us feel more time poor than is needed. So this is again why I'm also advocating not only for individual level strategies, but also organizational and societal level strategies to help everyone be able to put time first in the context of their everyday lives. At the BV Energy Unit, we are working quite a lot at helping organizations to apply behavioral science. What can organization management and leadership do differently to support individuals to reclaim their time and live happier lives? Uh, what I've been observing in my data is that even small, simple interventions enacted in organizational contexts can go a long way. So one very specific example is a field experiment we ran in a sales, uh, a sales and marketing firm. And what we observed among busy executives is that encouraging them and their teams to put proactive time on their calendar, so two-hour blocks, at least twice a week, some of our teams did this more, to work on important but not necessarily urgent work and to be licensed to put their phones away and not check email during that time, significantly improved self-reported productivity and reduced burnout self-reported as well by about 20%. So a really simple intervention, costless actually, but there was a couple of key important points that we learned. So you have to communicate that this is happening within your own team so that you can normalize not instantaneously checking email. So I think the more that organizations start to work together toward these simple strategies of time management, setting clear norms around email, when the workday starts and ends, especially in this fully virtual environment that many of us find ourselves in, the better that organizations will be able to be to protect employees' time. We've also observed interesting effects with regard to deadline extension requests and vacation. So the majority of Americans don't take all of their paid vacation, even that that they're entitled to, because they worry about being negatively evaluated for taking time off. Again, this goes back to our earlier discussions about societal norms around the importance of work being particularly prevalent in the United States. Um, and so we've observed in the context of experiments related to deadline extension requests um, that if there's clear formal policies and that individuals don't have to go directly to their manager, but can instead go to a neutral third party to ask for requests for more time, whether that's for vacation or for deadline extension 
extensions on adjustable projects at work, that this encourages more people and especially junior people and women who are unlikely to use vacation and unlikely to ask for extensions. It sort of both narrows the junior employee and gender gap, but it also encourages all employees to ask for the temporal resources they need, whether that's vacation time or more time on work deadlines. Mm -hmm. And why do you think uh, it is not only a great orientation from a moral point of view, but also something critical to help organizations to be more successful? Yeah, so we, there's a lot of emerging data in economics and social psychology showing that happier workers are more productive. So it's a good, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence now suggesting that workplaces with more flexible strategies, um, the, that that's correlated with firm performance. I think especially now, um, junior employees and in, individuals entering into the workforce are even more attuned to autonomy and flexibility to working to standard as opposed to hours. And what I've observed and what the data says is that um, organizations who honor employees' time and care about their happiness ultimately perform better from a profit perspective. So who doesn't want that? Happier employees and more profit at the end of the day. Yeah, quite good objective. Are there some uh, real-life examples that you could point to in organization you think are doing a great job at this? I haven't spent enough time in across individual organizations to sort of point out one particular company that's uh, doing a great job, but there's definitely examples of companies who have innovative time flex policies. So Andrew Barnes and his colleagues have implemented the four-day work week, which is basically a time incentive for getting your work done during the week. Employers and employees agree on KPIs, and if the employee hits those KPIs by Thursday at 5 p.m., they get Friday off. It's been shown correlationally. There's no randomized control trial at this point that employees are happier, they're less likely to leave, and that those firms become more productive. Another real-life example of using time in a way that promotes creativity and flexibility is, of course, Google's dabble time policy. Uh, so they allow uh, employees are at least used to uh, 20% of their work time to work on whatever they want. And that created major innovations like Gmail that Google is now known for. Similarly, IBM allows employees, or at least used to, I think that they still do, uh, allows employees to take service sabbaticals where after about seven years of experience, they can take a year off outside of the firm and go and volunteer or work in another organization. And of course, these are all strategies that not only promote employee happiness, but are good for productivity and creativity. There's been some great research by Francesca Gino and others suggesting that work trips abroad and more diverse experiences can bring more creativity and innovation to an individual who's then going to bring that creative thinking back to their firms. Ashley, I'm going to pivot us a little bit um, because, of course, we can't miss an opportunity to ask a question around the COVID crisis. Um, so as an expert in happiness, what is your advice to help people to be happy or at least not be too unhappy during this time? Yeah, so it this has been I've been doing a lot of research on happiness during COVID. Um, me, my colleagues and I have saw this as um, an opportunity to study time use in this forced experiment of working and living completely in a remote and technologically mediated environment. So in part with the Center for Advanced Hindsight and some of our colleagues all over the world, we've been running a time use and well-being survey since March. 
um, you know, we ran the survey between March and May. And so I'll just share a few high level findings. I think we have about 70,000 respondents from 44 countries. And so what we observe is perhaps unsurprising. We see that employees are feeling more distracted and like they're completing more unproductive as opposed to productive work. We also see that individuals, the silver lining is that they're spending more time with friends and family, both their immediate family at home or anyone they're isolating with as well as virtually. And so that's been a positive silver lining of the current work from home moment. What we also observe is, again, unsurprisingly, people with young children at home or even children under the age of 17 are being disproportionately affected in terms of distraction and feeling like they're unproductive during this period of time. Women are taking on way more of the chores and necessities than men. Uh, if you extrapolated from our aggression coefficients, it would be about 12 days more in a year that women will have will spend um, engaging in cooking, cleaning, and childcare than employed men um, during this fully remote time. And it's interesting, but it's not the childcare that's uh, leading or predicting rather these negative outcomes for happiness for women. It's the amount of time that they have to spend in chores. So this links back to the earlier conversation that we should all be thinking about making time-saving purchases, especially in this challenging environment where we have a lot of demands on our time. Um, We've also seen in some uh, qualitative research that the workday has fundamentally changed. So work has actually expanded to the time that we used to spend commuting. So our workday hasn't gotten shorter, even though we're saving an abundance of time. In some of the analysis we ran, we worked out that it, just in the U.S. alone, employees have saved about 89 million workdays since March from not commuting, yet they're filling that 100% almost with work. Um, so our workdays have gotten longer. We're sending more me we're sending more emails. We're having more meetings. And this is creating some of the self-reported distraction and lack of productivity we've been observing in our data. So as a result of all of these findings taken together, we've been advocating that organizations and individuals build in breaks, boundaries, and transitions. So it's even more important now to focus proactively on one important task that you need to get done in a workday and protect your schedule to get that done. It's also more important now to have a clear start and end time. So Microsoft recently implemented virtual commutes so they don't let their employees schedule meetings in the time that they would have otherwise spent commuting. I think that's a positive strategy. And we also need to leave slack time in the middle of the day so that we can eat, take care of our kids, engage in other personal responsibilities we might have, but also these breaks in our schedule allow for spontaneity that's gone missing in a fully virtual environment. So these informal conversations, these hallway conversations, water cooler conversations, however you want to think about them, have almost gone completely missing in the virtual environment, in part because our days are back to back to back to back in Zoom meetings. And so it's it's not only good for employee well-being, it's also good um, for creativity to allow some breaks and transitions in one schedule, much like we naturally have in a co-located environment. Well, happiness during COVID is especially relevant to us because the BVA nudge unit has been working with the French government to change people's minds and their behaviors during the pandemic. So what would you recommend that governments can do to help people manage during this tough time? Mm, I think that's... Um, uh, challenging question, but we have been observing. So I'm part of a Lancet committee on mental health and well-being, and I think 
again, government should recognize that the well-being consequences of COVID are not uniformly distributed in the population. So overall, representative samples around the world suggest our happiness hasn't changed much during pre-post-COVID. Um, but when you dig deeper beyond the averages, you see that people who are already vulnerable before are, are experiencing negative con mental health consequences as a result of um, COVID. So if you had mental health issues before, if you've been directly impacted by COVID, if you, if you had someone in your family who's become seriously ill as a result, if you lost your job, then the, if you're part of a disadvantaged group in society already, then the mental health effects of the COVID pandemic have been especially negative. And so I would say from a recommendation standpoint to government to really identify the groups in society who may be struggling the most and try to provide interventions that are relatively low cost, low touch, such as resilience training or therapy, talk therapy administered online that's relatively low lift and try to get those kinds of interventions out to the people who are most likely to benefit from them. Uh, Ashley, we are close to the end of our conversation. So I'd like to end by asking you a bit about the future. As a rising behavioral science star, you and your colleagues work will lead the future of behavioral science. What is your vision for the future of our field? I, I already see this um, in Departments like mine that bring different disciplines together to solve societally important questions. I would love to see for the future to continue working across disciplinary boundaries to really push the thinking and the rigor of the work forward. I think Chris Bryan and David Yeager and their colleagues have a a forthcoming paper in Nature Human Behavior advocating for understanding boundary conditions of effects and I think an understanding heterogeneity to a greater degree. So I think as we start to amass more and more data on behavioral science informed interventions from government units and organizational units all over the world, really understanding what's going to work in what context and why and really laying out a clear framework for not just what kinds of interventions to suggest, but when and for whom. And I think continuing to push knowledge in that area from an interdisciplinary perspective is where I see the field going already and where I hope it continues to thrive. I also think that bringing in more diversity into the field is going to be critically important going forward. So we've been having a lot of conversations with the Busaras and um, of the Busaras of the world and their colleagues, and not only bringing science to areas of the world that haven't had as much behavioral science, but bringing researchers from those places into key mainstream conversations in behavioral science is really where I want to see the future of behavioral science go so that not only is it inclusive in that it's not just studying weird populations, but that behavioral science becomes inclusive by involving the field officers, by involving researchers on the ground into mainstream academic and, and practical conversations. Thanks a lot for sharing. And regarding your future, can you share with us any exciting new project or topics or any new books? So I have been running a large uh, multi-method qualitative and quantitative project with a management consulting firm, looking at how this forced experiment in working from home is fundamentally informing what work needs 
like what types of activities need to be in a work day and how to structure, arrange, organize them. Um, so I think you'll be seeing more from me on this idea of building out the types, the fundamental elements of the types of time we need in knowledge work to get our work done and how those building blocks have been altered by the COVID pandemic. I've also been running, as I mentioned, um, a large field experiment in Rajasthan in some real rural villages in India, looking at the role of time-saving technology for allowing and enabling girls uh, to go to school in that community and looking at crop yields and physical health outcomes and tracking over long periods of time. So that's another experiment that I'm very excited to see the results from. Well, Ashley, we want to thank you so, so much again for joining us today. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with, perhaps where they can find out more about you and about your work? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn just by looking up my first and last name. Um, and I love hearing from listeners. So if any of our conversation sparked ideas, feel free to reach out via email which is available on my faculty website. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ashley. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks for the great conversation. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.